Well, this evening we begin a new topical series in which I intend to take us through just very quickly. I mean, it'll still take a while, but uh, we won't be going into all of the very specific details. But I do intend to take us through the, the main topics covered in our confessional standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so this evening we begin, as the Westminster Confession begins, with the doctrine of Scripture. And so I'm going to read to you this evening as our jumping off point, or as a scripture that will be a proof text for uh, the points made in the confession, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So this is God's holy word, as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to Timothy. And so uh, we attend with reverence now upon the reading of that which is infallible and inerrant because it comes from the infallible and inerrant God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let us briefly pray. Lord our God, indeed you have given us these scriptures for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that each one of us may be made complete and thoroughly equipped for the things that you have called us to. So we ask now that you would equip us by our study of your word this evening and by this topical sermon and series that we would grow in our knowledge of the things of God and of what you have taught us to believe. And therefore, we pray that you would not only open our minds, but open our hearts to be instructed by you this night. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's uh, 
would be quite a task to exposit the scripture that I just read to you. As you know, when I first came here to Hebron, I preached through First and Second Timothy and Titus, and and uh, that was several sermons worth there that we just read. But tonight, uh, we're going to do something a little different. Really, we're going to. I read the whole chapter to give us context, but our focus is really going to be at the end of the chapter on the notion that all Scripture is given by inspiration or breathed by God. And what uh, we see about the doctrine of Scripture from there and from other of God's other parts of God's Word. When any of us uh, who are members of a Reformed Presbyterian Church here joined one, uh, we promised that we would abide by the confessional standards of our denomination, and those of us in ordained office, uh, the teaching and ruling elders and uh, deacons, all have accepted, we've promised that we accept the, the system of doctrine and the manner of worship that is set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms and the testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church as being agreeable to and founded upon the scriptures. What we promise then is that understanding the Bible to be the word of God, it's the only infallible rule for faith and life. We then have certain documents that we uh, as Reformed Presbyterians believe summarize all of the basic requirements of scripture. Not uh, They don't exposit everything. You can spend your whole life learning more and more things from scripture. But they give us a lot of the basic requirements and basic teachings of Scripture concerning what God wants and expects us to believe about Him and about ourselves and about the world and how He wants us to live in light of that knowledge. This is uh, some of some. These are some doctrines that are common not just to Reformed Presbyterians but to uh, all Presbyterian churches and have a lot of similarity with other Reformed churches who may use the more Dutch kind of standards, the three forms of unity and other standards. But uh, we in Presbyterian circles who've come out of the, uh, the Scottish church uh, have, a, uh, have as our standards the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. Now, this may come as a surprise to, to some, not probably to any of you here, but certainly in my former denomination, uh, there were lots of people who thought that they were the only Presbyterians. And they were surprised to hear that there are lots of other Presbyterian denominations. Of course, ours is just one of more than a dozen Presbyterian denominations just in the U.S. Uh, many in my former denomination, as I mentioned, thought they were the only Presbyterians around. But uh, there are also churches like the Presbyterian Church in America, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Bible Presbyterians, the Evangelical Presbyterians. There used to be Evangelical Presbyterians, and then they joined with the Reformed Presbyterian General Synod, who then uh, they became the Reformed Presbyterian Evangelical Synod, and then they joined the PCA in 1983. But there are, since about that time, another group called the Evangelical Presbyterians, and there's one of those congregations here in our own town. There are Covenant Presbyterians, there are Associate Reformed Presbyterians, uh, there's the fairly recent Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians. Uh, there are lots of them, <clears throat> just to name a few. Now, each of these denominations has certain confessional standards, uh, but one that all Presbyterians hold in common are the Westminster Standards. 
Now, the Westminster Standards are actually uh, several documents. The, the Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechisms are three that all Presbyterians hold in common. There was also a, 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 a form of Presbyterial church government that was produced, for example. Uh, but as we talk about what Presbyterians believe in this series, then, uh, it's really the Westminster Confession that I'm going to focus on. I'm just going to give a, a quick overview of what the Confession has to say over the next several weeks. The Confession is very detailed, uh, but I just want us to have a knowledge of its basic topics that are covered. Uh, sometime, uh, maybe in the adult Sabbath school class, we might go through the larger catechism, which is extremely detailed, it's intensely specific. Uh, and I mentioned to you this morning about a, a man who was being examined for ministry around the same time I was coming into the RPCNA, and so I didn't get to hear his exam. I was out in the in the lobby, and I heard the, uh, the presbytery break forth in applause. And it was because he had uh, answered from memory one of the questions from the larger catechism. It was one of a rather lengthy answer. <clears throat> what I'm going to uh, do... I pray is show just uh, just or this point now is just really give you the the basics of what the confession teaches uh, that we're supposed to believe if we are claiming to be authentic Presbyterians. Uh, we don't have time to go into a deep history lesson of of the Reformation and how the Westminster Standards fit into uh, the history of of uh, what was going on in England and Scotland in those days, but. Just note that during the 1640s, in England, there was a civil war going on. A civil war between, uh, to put it in quick terms, this is an oversimplification, but we'll say the pro-Catholic King Charles I and the Puritan-led Parliament. Now, the Puritans were Reformed Christians uh, who wanted to see the Church of England fully Reformed, and most of them wanted to see a uh, church much like what they saw in Scotland be uh, fully formed and uh, developed in England. They wanted to see that National Church of Scotland or something like it to become the National Church of England. And the Church of Scotland had since about 1560 been a Presbyterian church. For various reasons, don't have time to go into the Assembly's recommendations, which was that the Church of England be a Presbyterian church with this confessional standard. Uh, those, uh, those recommendations were never fully implemented in England. There were a couple of places they were sort of tried, but uh, never got fully implemented. But the Presbyterians in Scotland loved the resulting documents, and they adopted them as their standards. This was actually part of their fulfillment of the covenant they had made. It was known as the Solemn League and Covenant they had made between the Scottish Church and the English Parliament uh, to uh, adopt a common confessional standard between the churches in England and Scotland. And so they were keeping covenant when they did this. And so, so through the English Puritans and then by way of the Scottish Presbyterians, the Westminster Standards have passed to all Presbyterians in the English-speaking world and now well beyond. These standards have been translated into many other languages and, uh, and are the confessional standards of many churches around the world. So now let's dive into what the confession teaches. The first thing 
in the confession is the doctrine of Scripture. We have to know where do we get what we believe. And so they begin with the doctrine of Scripture. How do we, uh, what is our source of authority in the church for what we're going to teach and practice? We read in uh, Psalm 19 that God reveals his power and glory to an extent through his works of creation and providence. In nature, we find this in the first six verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Uh, that's a quick poetic way of speaking about what's called general revelation, that God has revealed himself in the things he's created. We can see something of the glory of the creator in that revelation that he gives through his creation. However, that's not enough, as the confession will say, as we'll see here shortly, for us to know uh, how sinful we are and how desperately we need to be saved and how to be saved. So uh, he specially reveals who he is, how we are to know him, everything we need to know about salvation in Scripture. So there's general revelation in, in nature, but there's also special revelation in Scripture, and that's what the rest of Psalm 19 is about. So starting at verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. Notice all these different words for the written word of God. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So recognizing those things, then David answers, Who can understand his errors? So the word is used to teach us that we need a Savior. Right? We've seen this in our series on the Ten Commandments. And he asks, cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In 2 Timothy 3, as we read this evening, Paul warns Timothy about the human tendency to embrace false teachings and false religion. That's what the first part of chapter 3 is about. Uh, and they'll do this in order to excuse and cover over or promote their sinful desires. And he talked about those who, who take advantage of people who are less knowledgeable. And the remedy he offers is the example and teaching of the apostles, of himself, everything else revealed by God, in his scriptures, which Paul says uh, literally are breathed by God. Here, God breathed. Theopnus is the, the Hebrew, or the, rather the Greek term there. So that verb that's translated here in the New King James as uh, given by inspiration in verse 16 is literally God breathed. And because the scriptures confirmed by uh, God, 
has given by him through certain prophets and apostles to whom he gave miracles. These are God's own word breathed out by him as surely as I'm breathing out now as I speak to you, right? Uh, They are profitable, Paul says to Timothy, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That will not be the typical attitude that you'll find in the world toward these scriptures. Some will say the Bible is trustworthy on matters of faith, but not on matters of history or science and so on. But if the Bible, if these scriptures confirmed by miracles, whose writers were confirmed by miracles, if it's God-breathed, we would have to ask, how could it have any mistakes? Does God make mistakes? Absolutely not. It's not primarily a history book, though there are historical books in it. It's not a science book. But where it touches on those things, where it gives historical narratives, where it speaks about things that we would consider scientific, it will be correct because it is the word of the all-knowing creator. Some spend a great deal of time and energy trying to prove the Bible has errors in it, but they have to defy reason and break the rules of logic in order to show that there's any contradiction I say in air quotes, uh, in the Bible. Because there aren't any real contradictions. Uh, People will tell you, they'll repeat hearsay, and they'll say the Bible's full of contradictions. But usually they can't point any out. And if they point any seeming contradiction out, it doesn't take a whole lot of study usually to show uh, that, no, those aren't real contradictions. These are things that work together. But they'll work very hard just to make it seem to the unwary that the Bible has errors or contradictions in it. Others at the other extreme will say that rather than being a merely human book full of mistakes, the the liberals might say, the the Bible, they'll treat it as if it's dictated by God and the human authors were essentially secretaries or stenographers. But what we actually find is that the Bible, because it's God-breathed into the human authors, uh, was breathed by God into those authors in such a way that Their thoughts and their feelings, their education, their language, their writing style are apparent, but that every word on the page is exactly what God wanted there. In fact, Paul's argument in Galatians, when he says that God did not say seeds as of many, but seed as of one, which is Jesus Christ, when he told Abraham that in his seed the nations would be blessed, Paul's argument there hinges on two Hebrew letters. If the Hebrew wasn't inspired to the letter, Paul's argument wouldn't make any sense. Paul's presuming that we understand that the Hebrew was inspired to the letter, that every letter on the page was exactly what God wanted there. This is what's called the doctrine of inerrant plenary verbal inspiration, if you want the the technical terms. And all that means is that the Holy Spirit is sovereignly superintended the writing of Scripture so that while Isaiah writes like Isaiah, Moses writes like Moses, and Paul writes like Paul, and Peter writes like Peter, and Peter doesn't write like Paul, and Paul doesn't write like Peter, and so on, every word on the page of the original text that was written by those men was the word that God wanted on the page. 
And yes, there have been some errors here and there made in copying those and handing them down to us, but we can compare the copies and see quite easily what was supposed to be there. And anything that we're not entirely sure about through deep and, and careful scholarship uh, makes absolutely no difference in terms of the doctrine that the scriptures teach. Usually things like how old was somebody in Genesis 11 when he started to have kids. Those are things that, that are the only things that are in question at all. And this is the case that God has, has superintended this writing so much so that Peter tells us that what we have written down in the scriptures is more sure than if we hear a voice from heaven speaking to us. It is a more sure word of God. This is what we find in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16 and reading through verse 21. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So they, he's talking about the, the transfiguration of Christ here. For he received from God the, the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him, from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you and I might say, wouldn't that be wonderful to have been on the mountain of transfiguration like Peter and James and John with Jesus? And we see this, then we would have no doubts whatsoever about who Jesus is. We heard this voice, Peter says, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, or literally in the Greek, we have the word made more sure which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture. So what is the prophetic word made more sure? Scripture. It's of any private interpretation or man's own interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, here's what the Westminster Confession has to say. Remember, we all agree we believe this so that we'll abide by this in the Presbyterian Church or in our case the Reformed Presbyterian Church although the light of nature and the work works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable they're citing Romans 1 there yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So we need no further revelation, the, the confession is contending from God. We, we have his will for us revealed in the Bible. After listing the 66 books that are authentic for the New, Old and New Testaments and explaining why we accept them and nothing else, not the Apocrypha, for example, in Scripture, the confession states the authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, so we don't accept that 
that the Bible is God's word because the church says so. We accept it because God says so. And he's confirmed it. It says, but holy upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. So they understand God to be the primary author of scripture. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. So while scripture has human authors, the primary author, as we've seen in the scriptures we were just reading, is God himself. And so the scriptures have his authority and therefore need no one else's endorsement or approval. Nevertheless, the divines, who that is the members of the Westminster Assembly, go on to say that, that we can plainly see that the Bible comes from God in its beauty and its internal consistency. 66 books written by more than 40 human authors over a period of more than 1,400 years, and they all work and agree perfectly with each other. That... That would be a hard enough project if you had all of the authors in the same room collaborating together. But this is over 1,400 years and in diverse places. They point out that everything we need to know about God, about how to serve Him, and how to be saved, are either plainly spoken in Scripture or logically deduced from it. My good necessary consequences is a term that the confession later uses. Some things are deep, some are obscure, but things you need to know to be saved are plainly stated. As the confession says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, or arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So it takes the Holy Spirit's action. We don't look at the Bible and say, oh, look at how majestic it is, that therefore must be the Word of God. It actually takes the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why people who might know the, the Bible frontwards and backwards still hate what it has to say. And then the confession says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences made, may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So we don't add traditions onto Scripture. We shouldn't be adding new revelations as, say, the new apostolic reformation types do. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are either clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, that not only the learned but the unlearned, in a due sense of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So in other words, the 
The Bible is understandable enough that anybody should be able to understand the gospel from it, even if they don't have the necessary ability and education to understand the deeper things in Scripture. And because Scripture comes from God, it is its own interpreter. We must always make sure that we read Scripture in light of Scripture and never read one part of it in a way that would force it to seemingly contradict another portion. If, if I read a part of the Bible and it seems to be contradicting another part of the Bible, I'm, I'm reading at least one of those parts wrong. Right? And so it says, And so the Holy Spirit, speaking of the Bible, must be the supreme judge of all controversies in the church. As the Confession states, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language. That means the common language of the people, not, not into vulgar language in the sense we think of the word vulgar now. <laughs> into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in, in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture which is not manifold but one, in other words, there's one meaning of Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So we use the, the more clear Scriptures to interpret the obscure. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose, sentences, in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. If we hold to these teachings, many of the missteps of churches and of individual Christians can be easily avoided. So, in your own dealing with the scriptures. Well, first, of course, read it. It's the confession there rightly said it should be translated into the common language so that everybody can read it. So take advantage of that. Read it. Study it for yourself. Get all you can out of it. Second, let it judge you. Don't judge it. Be changed by it. God knows what's right better than you or I do. Third, read it reverently. Ask the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life. If you are indwelt by the Spirit, the Word will change you. Be willing to be changed by Him, speaking in His Word. And don't just pick and choose the parts that you like and dismiss it. As one of my colleagues at seminary, I remember, spoke of people using the Bible as a salad bar. <laughs> what do you do with a salad bar? You don't eat everything on the salad bar. You just take the things you like and put them on your plate. Well, that's not how we should treat the Bible. Fourth, meditate on it. Fill your mind with it. When Jesus was confronted and tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he had a scriptural answer for every temptation. The more you fill your mind with scripture, the more you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to overcome trials and temptations. The fifth thing is in addition to studying on your own, study it with the church. God has given us gifted teachers to help us understand his word. And 
that he has given to the church. He's given each of us ways of comprehending that others don't have. You know, I learn from the students in a Bible study is, uh, just as I pray you learn from me as I'm teaching it. And I don't rely on my own insights when I'm preparing to teach. I use godly commentaries and uh, writings I often share with the class when we do Wednesday night Bible studies. And we need to, to heed others. We heed various Bible studies and listen to I listen to other preachers to feed me so that I can help feed you. The church is not infallible, but it is wise. And God has given us now in our time more than two thousand years of Christian scholarship that can help us understand the scriptures and grow in our walk. Well that's our introduction to the to what Presbyterians believe. So Lord willing, we will in the coming weeks uh, get into what else the confession has to say. But honor the word of God. And recognize it for what it is. It is God's written word. Let's pray. Lord God, author and giver of life and author of your written word, we pray that you would teach us to handle your scriptures with care and reverence that we might be transformed through the renewing of our minds even as we grow in our understanding of what you have written through these human authors, and thus, by that, be made more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen.